electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Failure is not an option to Jay Powell. Sharp words on taming record high inflation from Richard Clarida, former vice chair of the Federal Reserve. I think they're going to 4% hell or high water. Until inflation comes down a lot, the Fed's really a single mandate central bank. Intel making groundbreaking strides in Ohio. Let's do Giant semiconductor factories to put America back on the manufacturing map. Intel's CEO, Pat Gelsinger. This is the most important thing for humanity as we go forward. Everything is becoming digital. This is so critical, not only to our economy, but our national security. And goodbye to a constant on the world stage, Britain's Queen Elizabeth II. Joanna Coles on the Queen's legacy and her successor. King Charles has had the longest apprenticeship in history for this job. So I do think he will be a much more capable king than people perhaps have been expecting. It's Friday, September 9th, 2022, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Let's take a look at this. First up on today's podcast, an extended conversation about the Fed. Uh, Now, it may sound dry, but hear us out. Right now, we as consumers are dealing with inflation, price hikes everywhere, at dinner, in your Uber. Interest rates are high and getting higher if you've tried applying for a mortgage lately, yikes. If you've looked at your long-term portfolio lately, also yikes. The markets are spooked on and off by the prospect of more rate hikes in the pipeline, and we're only weeks away from the next Fed meeting where we assume we'll get another rate hike announced. And then there's the labor market. Some research bears out that every time inflation has exceeded 4%, While the unemployment rate was below 5%, we've gone into a recession. Now, inflation in July, it ticked down a bit, but it was way higher than 4%. It was 8.5%. Unemployment in August, 3.7%. So today, we're looking at how we got here, the history. Current Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell is committed to battling inflation despite the short-term pains his methods might cause. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. These are the unfortunate costs of reducing inflation. As current chair, Jay Powell is part of our central bank's bigger picture, and he's also part of its history. He's part of the legacy of Paul Volcker, the famed Fed inflation fighter of the 1980s, which you'll hear about in a second. And another part of that legacy, the bigger Fed picture, is Richard Clarida, former vice chair of the Federal Reserve from 2018 to January of this year. He helped set the foundation for Powell's current footing. So naturally, when our own economist Steve Leisman brought Richard to set, we were pretty excited to have somebody right there. Here's Joe. Steve Leisman joins us on set this morning. 
with a special guest, which I'm excited about. Because Joe, this is huge. We talk about it all the time, and he's going he's gonna to defend these things, right? Not that you need defending. Not that, not that they need defending. That's not what's huge about this. First time post oh, pen, yeah. we have five people around the table. Uh, yep. First interview, I believe, by the former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve since leaving office. It is. Now are you excited? Because I'm... I was already excited. You were excited. And now it's like doubled excited. It is. Richard, thank you for joining us this it's morning. It's great to, to see here. you. Really it's been great. too long. Really great. A little yeah. history in the... Making cable history television, right? Cable, cable television history. Richard, I want to ask you this question because I think there's only one thing that really matters uh, when it comes to the investment pr proposition relative to the Federal Reserve. Do you believe them or not? And it seems like on days when we're in the green, it's a day not to believe the Fed. And days when we're in the red, we believe the Fed. So give us some guidance about whether or not to believe these guys when they say they're going to do what they say they're going to do. I think you've got to believe the Fed. I think in particular after the chair's very effective speech at, at JA, the, JH, the message I got is very clear. Failure is not an option. Uh, to Jay Powell. So I think the uncertainty is how high will rates have to go and how long will they have to stay there to bring inflation down into the twos. But you got to believe the Fed now. I think, I think they've made that very uh, clear. And I've been surprised how unified the messaging is among other members of the committee uh, on this point. So you got to believe the Fed. My understanding is they're not really coordinating this. They're just sort of speaking from the same book here when it comes to... I always said, like, you wake up in the morning, and if you're a central banker, you hate inflation. You may be a dove or a hawk, but you're against inflation. Yeah. Let, let me turn to another question, because on the one hand, the Fed says they're data dependent. On the other hand, we hear these numbers like 4%, and they're kind of guiding us yeah. to, to this number. Is this data dependent or are they going to 4% come hell or high water? Well, I think, I think they're going to 4% hell or high water if I had to put it into two boxes. They are data dependent, but that's why they're going to 4%, Steve. Inflation is way too high. Inflation was way too high last year. Uh, the Fed had a lot of company, and I was part of it in getting the inflation forecast wrong. But, but job one, and really I think of the Fed right now, until inflation comes down a lot, the Fed's really a single mandate central bank. The chair made clear the Fed knows that if you squander price stability, it's very hard to achieve and sustain maximum employment. So I think that they, they are data dependent, and the data is inflation is too high, so I think they're going at least to, to 4%. You already squandered it. That's the problem. <laughs> okay, well, right? we can agree to disagree on that. No, but... No, but that's the thing that gets me. It's almost like we're in the soup now. We're yeah. in this mess. Yeah. So I guess there's no reason to talk about how we got in the mess. But it's just unfortunate that, that we need to do things that are counterintuitive or counterproductive. We need to raise unemployment. We need to slow the economy. We need to cut off this, uh, a, a great recovery. We need to make uh, borrowing costs higher for entrepreneurs and people yeah. that are trying to to build businesses that hire people. We're in this mess of, of cutting off our nose because of, uh, for, for some reason, and the answer that we're giving, what's that got to do with Putin's price hike? What's that got to sure. do with, with, with uh, inflation yeah. that's all around the place caused yeah. by other things? Yeah. So we, our people here in this country, yeah. got to take it on the chin to lower inflation. Yeah. For, it, it, it's it's yeah. not a great way and, to do and, business. Well, no, Rich. Joe, and if, I think if it were just Putin and it were just energy, uh, I think your point would be 100% correct. The, the problem is that the shock that the economy took globally with the shutdown and the pandemic and the reopening was an enormous shock. It was almost like a warlike shock. So there's been a lot of dislocation. And unfortunately, a piece of that is the economy got out of balance last year, in part because of policy and in part because of other measures. And I think Chair Powell is correct that over the long haul, 
You can't prosper in the economy as we saw in the 70s. You and I remember the 70s uh, with high and variable inflation. So I agree. It's not a great place to be in. If it were just Putin, you would be right. But unfortunately, the economy is out of balance now, and the Fed needs to bring demand Interest back rates seem, seem too low, and, and, and you can't have uh, people taking risks because sure. you, you, know, you, yeah. you, you can't spawn stupid decisions by keeping rates too low. Yeah. So I see how we need to get back to a, a yeah. more normal level. Sure. But I think the Fed, would you agree that the Fed enabled a fiscal policy to, to run amok? Well, let me, what I'll say about that, because I was obviously in, as vice chair during 20 and 2021, um, as I said, 22 million jobs were lost in the spring of 2020, 30% decline in GDP. The Fed was all in. I have no apologies for that. I think given the shock, the Fed needed to be all in. I, had, I, I was not unhappy when the CARES Act passed at the end of March, which is $2.5 trillion. I think what you can say is that as we went through 2021, it became clear, maybe sooner to others than to others, that demand, in part supported by that policy, was out of balance with supply. But well, I think you have go, to look you, at the you, shock. But you don't date it back to 09? Other people say you've been in emergency it's, it's Well, I'll only talk about 09. the three and a half years I was there. <laughs> How about <laughs> okay. that? All right. I kind of disagree a little bit with Joe on a... On a you disagree a, or agree? Disagree. On oh, a fine oh, point. Okay. A fine point, which is this one. I think it matters to go back and figure out how and why they got it wrong. Oh. What troubles me about it, and I, I understand why you were saying in the context of your other question, Because we got to do it now. Yeah. Right? But, but don't we need to not do it next time? Rich, was there group think on the Fed in that period of 2021? I'm surprised. You had guys like Larry Summers. Okay. You could disagree with Larry, and he has some bold statements. Uh, yeah euphemistically bold, um, but uh, uh, you could say that there was concern that uh, policy was too wide open. Why wasn't there more dissent on the Fed? Why wasn't there more people coming forward and saying, you know what, we need to put the brakes on this. We were talking yesterday, March of 2022, rates were zero. Yeah. And we were already six or seven months into this yeah, inflation yeah, run. Yeah. How did it go wrong and what needs to be fixed on the Fed? That's yeah. what I care about. Yeah. To make, it doesn't go wrong again. Okay, so let's, let's talk about 2021. We came into the year 2021. Remember in 2020, the, the pandemic was disinflationary. Inflation fell in 2020. Unemployment was high. The Fed thought we had excess capacity in the economy. And I would say, if you look at the real-time data that we got through about May or June, it was consistent with that view. Underlying right. broad inflation, Dallas trim mean was running about two. You were four or five percent on the headline, but the, yeah, the court, wage right. gains were running right in line with our inflation objective. But you are correct. Through the summer, there was an inflection point in the data. And basically everything went hockey stick by September. Wages, broader measures of inflation. And, and so I think the Fed did get the potential supply of the economy wrong. Um, I'm sure folks will go back and look at how that occurred. What I will also say, Steve, is in August of 2021, and I know you know it because you covered it, I gave a speech at Peterson reflecting my own views, which was that the combination of monetary and fiscal policy in place in August of 2021 that. was going to push inflation, average inflation, which you know is our new framework, at or above two. So I think on the average inflation metric, you know, we checked that box in in August. So I think the, the reality is, is that the members of the committee did begin to realize during the summer it was time to pivot. And in the event, the committee did pivot in November to begin shrinking the balance sheet. But it is a fair question 
how long it took to, to, to do the taper and then how long it took to raise, start to to raise, raise rates. rates. Hey, Rich, yesterday I listened to um, Chairman Powell's yeah. speech or the interview that he was giving with, with a lot of interest. It was this whole idea of the dual mandate where yeah. you want to lower inflation, but you also have the mandate of making sure you're dealing with full employment, promoting yeah. full employment. He was pretty pained in saying, yeah, he thinks the dual mandate is right. And by the way, Congress is the one that sets it, yeah. so you have to listen to what they say. But it strikes me that we could run into an issue where Congress gets more and more vocal about one mandate being chosen over the other. Because everyone acknowledges that in order to bring inflation down, we are going to have to deal with higher inflation. There was just a piece yesterday from Jason Furman suggesting we could be looking at 6.5% on inflation for two years before you get back to 2 to 3% inflation. Um, is there a point where you have to recognize, at least for the short to medium term, that one of those mandates, inflation, is going to take center stage and deal with potential pushback from elected officials who aren't going to like that? Well, Becky, I think both are correct. I, I think that uh, I, what I read, uh, uh, like all of you at, at Jackson Hole, uh, my interpretation of that very crisp speech was failure is not an option, you know, keep at it till the job is done. And I think in effect what that means, the some pain reference, what that means is for some time the Fed is in essence in single mandate mode. And the way Jay and others explain that, Chair Powell explained that, is over the long run you cannot have and sustain maximum employment with high and skyrocketing inflation. So I think that I think that's the way I interpret and will interpret the Fed going forward. But I think the second part of your question is also accurate in the sense that it may well trigger some pushback. Certainly, you know, in, in my youth, I followed Paul Volcker, and Paul received a lot of pushback back in 1980 and 81. I'm not saying the situations are comparable. Volcker inherited 14% inflation. But nonetheless, I think that the mission here is going to generate some pain, as the chair said, and that could generate some pushback. Richard, I need to interrupt here because yeah. I, I'm, I don't want to take credit for the phrase that you used for me, used from the outside, which is that you said, the Fed is now off of this concept of immaculate disinflation. Yeah, well, I, I think in fairness, the March SEP, um, which showed that inflation was going to fall uh, next year with unemployment really not rising and with output never falling below potential, you know, yes, that, that could have happened, but that, not would, that would not have been my baseline. And so you saw the committee pivot more hawkishly in the June SEP with a rise in unemployment and a slowdown in growth. And I think we'll see more of that in the SEP we get in, in two weeks. And thus the some pain reference in you the Jackson Hole remark. You know how nice this is, Andrew? Do I have to pick? Is, is, no, it, my, no, is it my uh, choice? You want to go? Or I don't, you can go. This, this I've been thinking about, and I don't know whether it's, you mentioned Volcker. There's a, a, a new school of thought that, that the economy is, is in, could be inherently stable if the Fed somehow would stay out of things, and it, even back then, it, oh, would, yes. it, would have, it would have equilibrated. And actually, with the new prime minister in, in England, there, there are certain people saying that what she's saying, yeah, there's, there's going to be some pain initially, but we're going to cut regulation, we're not going to raise corporate taxes, we're going to increase the supply of the economy. Yeah. We're not going to try to raise rates to lower the supply of the economy, yeah. but we're going, to, we're going to just try and stimulate the private sector, and then the inflation yeah. sort of takes care of itself. And we don't need you raising rates when there's inflation, lowering rates when there's this, that, that, that there's an equilibrium. Is there any, does that make any sense at all that the, well, the economy that, could be self-correcting? That, 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 is, that is a long-standing issue of discussion and research and macroeconomics. Those debates go back at least to Milton Friedman and Paul Samuelson in the 1960s. They had dueling Newsweek columns on exactly that point. Does monetary policy destabilize the economy right. by attempting to fine-tune interest rates and uh, uh, the money supply? 
the broad consensus beginning in the 1990s is that there is a role for monetary policy in raising lowering rates to keep inflation around a low and stable level. Right. But I guess, look, economic historians are going to come back and look at this for the next 70 years. I think what they may conclude is that this was a warlike shock. You shut down the global economy, you reopen it, there's dislocation. And my, my hope is that what we'll be saying in two or three years is we got through this, inflation came down, it was basically a spike in supply and demand. But certainly the alternative hypothesis, which you put forward, which is that monetary policy has been part of the problem, I'm sure we'll receive a lot of attention. But do you think there's a chance it just comes I, down I don't anyway. agree with it. You think it just comes down if, no, if, if we did nothing? It's weird because if it's a supply chain issue right. and you're raising rates to make it harder sure, to let me increase put you in the, let me put you in the hot seat on that, right? Uh -huh. Okay, so let's say you're the charge of the Fed yeah. and a 30-year U.S. bond is not clearing in the market. Right. Are you just going to sit there and say, oh, it'll take care of itself. So, I'm chill. So you mean you got to raise rates? To no, not raise sense. rates. In that case, you, gotta let you, it liquefy, you, you, you liquefy the markets. If you're ready to sit there and let it clear and a 30-year U.S. bond is not, is not clearing. But that's, that's letting the, the balance sheet continue to grow or not run off as quickly versus raising rates, right? If you want to make sure you've got liquidity in the market. If I could just rewind the tape a little bit. I, I don't think we want to diminish. It's very easy now to say, oh, yeah, of course we knew in March of 2020 that the 22 million jobs we lost would come back in tears. And of course we knew that the 30% decline in the economy, which was faster than the Great Depression, would, would do a U-turn. I guess the Fed and fiscal authorities could have taken that risk and sat on the sidelines and let it all work out. But I think you can't look at where we are now. You have to look at both the employment side and the output side, as well as the inflation side, and look at the nature of the shock and the policy So uh, did, it, did the growth of M2 cause this inflation? Not reliably. <laughs> no, what, I'm just wondering, what, I mean, yeah. is it, no, is, was, this, was this the Fed's fault or was it, was it not the Fed's fault for printing too much? In, in, the rate of inflation we got is a function of the fact that the amount of demand in the economy supported by policy and the supply in the economy were out of balance and prices were too high. Andrew. I want to ask you a completely different question. Good. Uh, but <laughs> it's a personal question and a delicate one uh, because it's about... Um, really the credibility of the Fed in a different way, yeah. which is that when you stepped down, one of the big issues was stock trading. Yeah. And I just wanted to get your sense uh, and your thoughts on that issue. If yeah. we could talk about it and talk about sort of whether you think that affects the credibility of the Fed, what you, whether you think that what the Fed is doing, that that should be applied to, by the way, other parts of government, if you will. Well, I, what I was simply saying on that is that, you know, the Fed has put in place some new uh, rules and regulations on that, which I think make a lot of uh, sense and I think those are fine. Those are fine efforts, and I'll just just leave it at that. But but in, just on a, on a personal basis, yeah. do you say to yourself that it affects the credibility of the Fed? Do you think that it affects the kind of people that will want to take this job? I mean, that was always you know one of the arguments about whether people should be able to trade or not trade or this or that yeah. is that there are going to be. Uh, you know, people either who are fabulously wealthy, who want to stay fabulously wealthy, want to invest their money, yeah, yeah. And, and you're not going to be able to capture their expertise because they're not yeah. going to want these roles. Um, I mean, there's lots of debates about all of this in, in the context both of the Fed and more broadly. Well, I'll simply say that for me, it was the honor of my career to serve at the Fed, and I, and I, and I can't imagine anyone who would be capable of doing it would, would say no to the position based upon the rules that are now in, in place. So the rules are not going to impact that issue? I don't think so. Which I don't want to let you leave, Richard, without talking about the, the, the trade-offs that have to happen. We yeah. talked about this at the beginning. Where does unemployment have to go? There's this idea that Becky brought up from, um, uh, from Jason Furman, 6.5% yeah. to bring it back under control. And then there's this idea from Jay Powell who says, you know what? We can get rid of job openings. 
and not necessarily get rid of jobs. Where do you stand on that? Well, as Jay and the committee has indicated, and I agree with, there, the, if you look at wage dynamics and other indicators, vacancies, unemployment, there is imbalance in the labor market. And so in order to bring it into balance, three things have to happen. You need to have some increase in participation. You need to have some reduction in vacancies. And you're probably going to have to have some rise in unemployment. The amount of rise in unemployment that, that the Fed will need in order to get inflation down will depend on how much we get on participation and how much we get on disk firms reducing the number of vacancies. And there's no, there's no crisp or definitive answer uh, to that question. But, but I do suspect that we're going to need to see a rise in unemployment uh, north of what the Fed is currently marking down, which is about half a percentage point. I would point out that in mild recessions in the past, and you know, here's the R word, but if we, if we do go into a recession, in mild recessions in the past, the unemployment rate has is, is risen by less than 2%. So I think one issue about the R word right now is the last two recessions in 08 and, and the pandemic were the two worst ones in 75 years. But we could have a downturn in the U.S. with just a sharp slowdown in growth and a modest rise in unemployment. Uh, and I think it's too soon to tell what will be required. But I do think it will be more of a rise than we've seen in the projection. Is the recession your base case here? I, th I think that it may take a, a while for our friends at the MBER to call a recession, as you know. Uh, but uh, I, think it, I think it's probably about a coin flip right now. 50-50. Yeah. One other thing, and, and a place where I dramatically agree with Joe is this issue, the idea of bringing back labor. Yeah. We can't provide the supply that we provided before if we don't have the workers providing the work to provide the yeah. supply. Yeah. And the market looks at strong job growth as inflationary and looks at weak job growth as disinflationary. I just, I'm missing a chip somewhere, Richard, and I think that putting people back to work is disinflationary. Well, and and I think any fair reading of the 39 speeches I gave as vice chair will show that's a thing <laughs> I, made, I made repeatedly, including in my first speech at Peterson in October 2018, where I said, uh, we're, we're, the Fed is not against wa wages going up. We want wages to go up. We just don't want it to be inflationary. And we had an incredibly good labor market before the pandemic, a low unemployment rate, real wages were rising, more at the bottom end of the wage distribution. One of the reasons that we cut rates, we adjusted rates down in 2019, was to support a strong labor market. So I and I believe my former colleagues are entirely with you on that point. Unfortunately now, given the neighbor of the pandemic shock, um, there's a different challenge in the labor market right now. But longer term, I think Fed policy is entirely consistent with trying to achieve that goal. Richard? Real pleasure to have you join us. Thank when you very much. Were, appreciate at, it. That's when people were at work and being productive <laughs> instead of at home, like screwing around with computer games, you know, while they're pretending to, to actually be working. You don't think Steve. that happens in the office? No, not nearly as much because someone might come up and go, you're fired. At home, it's like, eh, no one around. I got to go to the bathroom. Joe, did you ever try to sit in the CNBC newsroom? and try to read a monetary policy speech on, equal, on monetary equilibrium. Doesn't happen, right? I read a lot hey, better Steve, at home. By my, it, it's a lot. Hey, What's I up, can't Steve? talk now, Betsy. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know Rich, whether that for matters. Well, you're, thank you. It, I'm much more productive. You're, coming? you're more productive at home? Way more productive. Well, you know, hopefully you're not building homes or, you know, actually out in the real world doing things that matter to everyone. And, you know, you're, you're at home, like, thinking. That's not going to get us anywhere. Yeah, Intellectual stop thinking. property, Joe. <laughs> stop Where thinking. have you been the last 20 years? Mm. I don't know. Thank I, you. Want, I, like we'll the, I like the real economy. Rich, thank you. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod. 
Intel is finally breaking ground in Ohio, an historic shift for American industry and technology. CEO Pat Gelsinger on the huge power in our tiny chips. Why did we let something so important, every aspect of your life is becoming digital. Mm -hmm. Everything digital is so semiconductors and now we've become acutely dependent on a few areas of the world and some of those not the most geopolitically stable. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Eight months after announcing the biggest economic development project in Ohio, Intel is finally breaking ground today on the $20 billion pair of factories to manufacture computer chips in the heart of it all. Fun fact, I'm from Ohio, and that used to be our official state tourism slogan. Tiny semiconductor chips power smartphones, cars, laptops, many other pieces of equipment that run our modern lives. Most of them are manufactured today in China and Taiwan. And Intel's bet is an important one on manufacturing critical material here in the United States. To build this new site that will be fabricating chips by 2025, Intel received more than $2 billion in state incentives, a 100% property tax abatement for 30 years, and much more in grants and subsidies from the Federal CHIPS Act. This bipartisan legislation was designed to incentivize just such a project, and that approach is not without its critics, who say it's too much spending and that the demand for semiconductors surged by the pandemic is waning. Republican Senator Rick Scott of Florida joined Squawk Box this morning. The CHIPS Act, $280 billion, $280 billion. By the way, it's supposed to be sort of anti-China. First, we have a glut of semiconductor chips, and we're just going to give more money to go build more plants. And here's an example example of how it works. Intel made $20 billion last year. They're going to get $4 billion to build a plant. Is it exactly what we need? And by the way, they'd already committed to build a plant. They're going to get a $4 billion write-off on top of that and a billion dollar tax increase or, or tax credit. That makes no sense. Does it make sense? CNBC's Christina Partsinevelis was on site at the groundbreaking in New Albany, Ohio. She kicks things off with Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger. 
Pat, thank you so much. This is a really, really big day considering this is the largest single investment here in Ohio. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Quite the setup, Secret Service <laughs> and everybody here. But I want to get straight into just the timeline for this, these two yeah. fabs. So right behind you, you got a lot of construction going on and we're expecting a time frame by 2025, but you got to hire 7,000 workers. You got to find the engineers as well. So how do you anticipate you actually hitting that timeline? Well, it takes, you know, three plus years to build a site like this. So, you know, we're pushing it. We had hoped to get started a little bit sooner as, you know, CHIPS Act was going through Congress and so on. So, you know, 25, 26, that kind of timeline okay, so is what we're aiming at. You know, that's when our business needs are in place as well. And, uh, but I will tell you that we have seen such an enthusiastic response from the local community here as we're going through, you know, permitting processes. You know, this is a mega site. You know, this is one of the largest sites in the world, and if we build it out, I hope it becomes the largest site on the planet for semiconductor manufacturing. It's an extraordinary, we're going to have, you know, on the order of 7,000 construction workers here right, next year, lot, right? You know, every tradesperson in the entire Midwest is, you know, okay, concrete trucks and, you know, uh, uh, you know the uh, construction workers, all of them showing up here and we're going to build fast and we're excited. And and it's it's not going to be cheap to build, right? On average, what, $10 billion per fab. Uh, you're getting $2.1 billion in incentives from the state. You're getting 100% tax abatement on the buildings. You're even, they're even waiving uh, the city permits here and that's not included including what you could potentially get from the CHIPS Act, which you anticipate being what, six billion bucks? Well, you know, the CHIPS Act, the way it's designed, it's up to three up to three billion dollars per project. Obviously, we have two projects here. You know, and you sort of say, well, why is that? And, you know, all the studies have shown that if we were building in Asia, you know, and remember that, you know, the U.S. and Europe used to be 80% of manufacturing. Today, we're 20%. And this became acutely seen throughout COVID. It's like, why did we let something so important, every aspect of your life is becoming digital, mm -hmm. everything digital, so semiconductors, and now we've become acutely dependent on a few areas of the world, and some of those not the most geopolitically stable, so let's build them back here. But if there's a 30 to 40% gap in the cost of building it there, what we build here must be competitive in the world. And that's the nature of the CHIPS Act, it's about closing that competitive gap so that these buildings that we are building here, the most advanced manufacturing on the planet so advanced, can compete right? in the world. But a competitive when you only have, no, this is a huge feat, but it's two fabs, right? Two How, fabs, two hopefully fabs. more is that, over is that, time. Because I've spoken to other executives and some that maybe say, hey, it's a drop in the bucket when you're talking about uh, the global scale. Yeah. So what do you say to that? Do you, do you believe that there should be uh, more than $52 billion for the CHIPS Act? The, uh, you know, this is two. We have two going on in Arizona. Right. We have another one in the Oregon uh, that we uh, just uh, finished. And the site is capable of going up to eight or ten fabs. So my objective would be is that we just keep building. So you know, that this, go, this project doesn't end for the next decade or decade and a half. Do you have updates on that then? If the potential for eight fabs, you said if the CHIPS Act goes through, we'll spend up to $100 billion, right? Yeah, obviously, so, we got to start somewhere. So right, we're getting yeah, the I know, first I'm getting 200 ahead, but, way. You're getting a little bit ahead of us. But I, yeah, I, I'm an aggressive plans? guy and you're a little bit ahead of me. Well, our objective would be that we just keep building here. And as our demand, our foundry business uh, builds and we'll have some of our potential customers 
customers here today. You know, I tell them, hey, I want to put some of their logos on these fabs here as we go build them out in the future. And obviously business conditions, but the market for semiconductors, you know, almost doubles between now and the end of the decade. Right. So we believe these are great investments. We hope, you know, as these comes online, you know, 25, 26, and then we're building the next one, the next one, the next one as we uh, go forward in time. And yeah, we don't want this to be a drop in the bucket. We want this to be the biggest manufacturing location in the world. Just one quick thing though, you got $30 billion in funding from Brookfield Asset Management. That is a big, uh, a new form of uh, partnership for your corporation. Does that mean that you need to borrow money in order to expand going forward? Yeah, it's a very exciting deal that we've done and we called it the Semiconductor you know, Co-Investment Program or SKIP for short. And you know, if you look at big projects like a energy facility or solar farm or something like that, they've had these capital investment partners, but this model has never been done in semiconductors. And that's what we announced with Brookfield is coming together to find a way to structure a deal because you know, it's a lot of capital up front. Remember, I, you, know, you know, by the time we build one of these modules, we're well over 10 billion right. and we've gotten zero revenue. You know, for it, you know, that's a big, you know, risky commitment up front, and they're coming in as a capital partner. So it's a thirty billion dollar project in Arizona, and they're doing half of it. You know, fifty-one percent for us, forty-nine percent. Then it's equity financing, so it's a you know very interesting model of financing that it doesn't hit my balance sheet as a debt uh, burden. But and, and I'm going to toss. I know Andrew has a question, but you are sharing the stream of revenue, future revenue is going forward. You know, it's forward. a capped revenue stream yeah. that they see as part of it uh, for it. You know, and that is you know much like a debt financing, but it's as equity. So, you know, because they're carrying some of the mm -hmm. risk with us associated with it. But, you know, we see the majority of the margins if we achieve our objective over time uh, in the facility. And it does have a terminal uh, model where we receive all of the assets at the end. So it's a very interesting business model that allows us. And if you think about this, you know, between Chips Act, between the ITC provisions, between, you know, Brookfield, and I hope to have, you know, skip one, skip two, skip three, that we do these for some of the other projects. You know, that we've created more than $50 billion of capital capacity for these massive investments that we're wake making because we want to rebalance the supply chains, build more right. semiconductors, and employ more people right here in Ohio. Andrew has a question for you. Um, hey, Pat, it's, it's, it's Andrew Sorkin back in New York. I'm just curious, we had uh, Senator Rick Scott on before, but you could, you could make this uh, both sides of the aisle, Bernie Sanders on the other side both of whom have criticized uh, this package and say, look, this is corporate socialism. This is a company uh, that makes uh, billions of dollars in profits. What do they need the help of the taxpayers for? And if they're successful, they're gonna make even more money. What do, you, what do you tell those senators, but what do you also tell those taxpayers who look at this and say, I don't understand? The, uh, you know, the thing is, you know, this was a bipartisan bill. You know, we had, uh, you know, Cornyn and Schumer who pushed it across the line, you know, with Matsui and uh, McCall. You know, so we had bipartisan roles in the House, in the Senate, bringing this across the line. And not everybody voted for it, but mm -hmm. we had strong bipartisan support for it. And obviously there are some people in the extremes that say, oh, no, you know, it's corporate welfare. Well, you know, 80% used to be in U.S. and Europe, now 20%. Right? You know, this is a dramatic industry decline. This is the most important thing for humanity as we go forward. Everything is becoming digital. You know, build the fabs where we want them. This is so critical not only to our economy, but our national security. You know, just in Washington yesterday, you know, they see the critical role that this plays. This isn't like other industries. This is so foundational for our future, Andrew. We want it here. 
We want to be the leader in this. We invented it. Remember Silicon Valley? That's what it's named? Silicon yeah. Valley. Right? It wasn't arbitrary yeah. as the hub of technology and as, you know, the company. You know, I, I view when I came back as the CEO, you know, Grove, Moore, and Noyce, the people who put silicon into Silicon Valley, you know, it's in their honor, right, that we want this industry to be vibrant in America. And right here we are creating the Silicon heartland in Ohio. More, more broadly, though, philosoph philosophically and maybe very specifically, when you think about, quote unquote, industrial policy, which, of course, is a very controversial phrase um, among those uh, who, who think about capitalism, free markets and this, are there other parts of business that you think should be incentivized in a similar way? Well, I do think, uh, Andrew, that th this is what we did with the CHIPS and the Science Act is the most significant piece of industrial policy legislation since World War II. This is you know, just so significant, and I'm so proud of our you know, president for being here today, for the cabinet, you know, for the bipartisan role in Senate and Congress. You know, we also see that this should be the beginning of supply chain rebalancing. You know, it's not just about the fabs, but so many other components of the supply chain. We've heard lots of discussions about rare earths and minerals and so on. You know, and I think those need to be looked at. You know, but this is the most important piece as part of it. And you know, as some senators and congressmen will talk about, well, should we look at other sectors? We would say, yes, we should. This is the most important one, though, and I'm so proud that this is the beginning, and I think this is the domino that you know, starts a more holistic look at what the industrial policies should be across other sectors as well. Nice segue for us to end. Pat, thank you so much, and good luck today uh, with the president, who's going to be here a little bit later. Thank you so much. I'll throw it back to you guys in the studio. Christina, thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, the end of an era, remembering Queen Elizabeth II, the United Kingdom's longest reigning monarch, former Hearst executive Joanna Coles. The Queen really epitomized the most extraordinary leadership values of Grand Britain, uh, extraordinary discipline, never complained, never explained, resisted uh, the vanity of media, and really kept her opinions to herself. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Elizabeth II was the rock on which modern Britain was built. Our country has grown and flourished under her reign. Britain is the great country it is today because of her. The business world has been reacting to the death of Queen Elizabeth II among the tributes Apple CEO Tim Cook saying, quote, there's nothing more noble than to devote your life to the service of others. We stand with the people of the UK and Commonwealth in honoring the life and dedication 
to duty of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Amazon CEO Andy Jassy saying, quote, sad day for so many around the world. On behalf of Amazon, sharing our deepest sympathies for the royal family and all of those mourning. And GM CEO Mary Barra saying, on behalf of GM, I extend our heartfelt condolences to the British royal family and people of the United Kingdom upon the loss of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Her leadership, grace, and devotion to service touched the lives of millions. She will be greatly missed. So it's a business story in its own way, but it's a, it's a larger cultural story. It, it is on the cover of, of every, every newspaper, newspaper this morning. In the world. Um, yeah, every newspaper, not just in the Commonwealth, but here right. in the United States, too. Every well, so many people said the same thing, that they were they were preparing themselves for it, yet still shocked. And it, it, it has a lot to do with the constancy of her and her reign, because they thought she would always be there. And, and when you're 96, and, and when you've been queen for 70 years, so you gotta be 71 or 72, and you, you, know, you were oblivious when you were a baby, but everybody else, she, for your entire life, it was Queen Elizabeth II. And, and the pictures that came out just this week showed her looking right. happy and healthy, sort of, so to speak, you know, looking pretty good as she welcomed Liz Truss and gave her her blessing as the next prime yeah. minister, the 15th. And you've seen the, uh, the yearly, you know, they have a photo of her from when she was born, and it, it goes out 96 years, and it changes slightly each year. They, they're brilliant the way they did uh, some of those things. So we've all... It's like the queen was always going to be there. I don't know, did she reach almost demigod status? Um, very few humans do that in, in their lifetime, but she, she probably did. I was trying to, earlier trying to think of a corollary. I can't think of any, it, it's hard to get to this point. And I looked at the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama is um, 1940. I think he was five years old. And he's been a constant. It, I'm, I'm not comparing it to that, but what else, can you think of any other Anyone else that, that sort of reaches that almost permanent status? Popes we've had, I don't know, we've had how many popes during her lifetime? How many presidents? 14 presidents? 14 presidents. During her lifetime. 15 prime ministers, starting with Winston Churchill. And not during her lifetime, during her reign. Yeah, during her reign. During it, her reign. And then you have to go back to, to the Louis XIV, in, who in the I think, but, but I think he, he was, was four or five years he old. He was four when he was, when he was named king. He was... A, a young she was woman. 25 or 26. Right. Um, so it, it is, um, I think, something that's touched all of us. Among the tributes, Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai saying, her steadfast leadership and public service have been a constant through many of our lifetimes. BlackRock's Larry Fink saying, her leadership defined an era and she will be remembered for a lifetime dedicated to public service. And JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon weighing in, for the many people in the UK and the world over, she has been a constant figure throughout their lifetimes. Many have found reassurance in the stability of her leadership and her enduring sense of duty and service. Joining us right now to talk about the life and legacy of Queen Elizabeth II and the challenges that lie ahead for the UK, we'd like to welcome Joanna Coles, former Hearst Chief Content Officer, who also served as Editor-in-Chief for Cosmopolitan Magazine. She's currently a board member with both Snap and Sonos. And Joanna, thank you for joining us this morning. I, I think we're all kind of um, reminiscing and just thinking about someone who has been a constant in our lives, someone we all uh, kind of looked up to for her dedication. But how would you describe kind of the mood and kind of figuring out what her legacy was? Well, morning, Becky, and, and great to be here. And it's a really sad day in Britain, as you can imagine. Uh, I think 
you know, most people have grown up with the Queen. And if you think about it, it's very unusual for business leaders to weigh in on heads of state like that. And of course, the Queen really epitomised the most extraordinary leadership values of Brand Britain, uh, extraordinary discipline, never complained, never explained, resisted uh, the vanity of media and really kept her opinions to herself. So you often didn't know what she was thinking at really important times and worked incredibly hard, not only opening factories and attending all sorts of ceremonies that many perhaps minor royals might find boring. But, you know, up until two days before her death, she was welcoming in the new prime minister, Liz Truss. Yeah, I, I think that in itself is just so much change for the UK this 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 week to have a new prime minister and now a new monarch. Um, this is coming at a pretty troubling time, too. Huge inflation costs, huge issues with energy costs, lots of questions about what comes next. What is the concern among Britons at this point? Yeah, great question. And I think, you know, Liz Truss is the fourth prime minister in six years, which is extraordinary for Britain. All conservative prime ministers, but an Italian-like uh, style of change. So the Brits are not really used to that. Though it's fair to say that King Charles, as we should now call him, has had the longest apprenticeship in history uh, for this job. So he does know what it requires. Uh, there's been some criticism, oh goodness, he's going to be a meddlesome king, he's going to be an activist king. But he sat at the shoulder of his mother for the last 73 years, knowing that at some point he would be taking over. And what's fascinating is that the causes that made him seem perhaps 30 years ago, 40 years ago, as eccentric are now the causes that very much resonate with people, especially young people. So climate change, organic food, architecture that's sympathetic to the environment. So I do think he will be uh, a much more capable king than people perhaps have been uh, expecting. His mother, the Queen, was a great uniter through all types of crises. Will King Charles be able to unite the country the same way? Well, I do think he's watched. I mean, literally, he's had the longest apprenticeship in history. I mean, he's taking over the job at 73, which is, you know, eight years beyond the mandatory age for retirement. Uh, and I think he very much wants to be a unifier. Uh, the Guardian uh, at one point asked for all his letters that he'd ever sent uh, to government ministers, I think in the hope of trying to expose him as being meddling behind the scenes. And in fact, what what came out after 10 years of them inquiring was a very thoughtful man, incredibly well informed, uh, really just trying to raise questions about issues that he knew were important to the British uh, public. So, you know, as long as he stays out of uh, real political interference, I think he'll be fine. And there's no question that he wants to be a unifier. And interestingly, the Queen uh, did say earlier this year that she wanted Camilla, who at the time was known as Princess Consort, to be known as Queen Consort, so that he would have support from Camilla when he ascended the throne. And you've got to imagine what a strange life that your career depends upon the death of, in his case, his mother. So the whole time he's been waiting to ascend the throne, but at the same time he knew that would come when his mother died. We, we all know about the Queen's uh, long international diplomacy skills. Um, she met with 
13 of 14 presidents under her reign um, and is known the world over. What would you say her economic legacy is to Joanna? Well, her economic legacy was, I think, really in um, being the face of brand Britain. I'm not sure she had any specific economic legacy other than to represent Britain as a fair and honest and decent place to do business. And as the face of the Commonwealth and the realms, she was hugely admired. And I do think that's been very helpful to Britain. And it's hard to see that Britain will maintain that sense of relevance on the world stage that it has managed to do. I mean, it really does kick above its weight in terms of influence. And it's really, you know, I think it's a very worrying time for the country, the changeover in, in prime ministers, lack of continuity, a tremendous internal strife. It makes it look much harder for Britain for the next few years. Joanna, our sympathies are with you and the nation. Thank you for your time this morning. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to Squawk Pod. Have a great weekend. We'll meet you back here on Monday. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.